This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons. Their faithful support allows us to continue the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are a small team composed of two families. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories, so we rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value the work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way to support Bodies Behind the Bus is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but has a tremendous impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Before we begin, we want to make the listener aware that this story contains adult content related to suicidal ideation. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. You can place a free and confidential call to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We've linked the number in our bio. You are worthy of fighting for, and you are loved. This is part two of Kat's story. If you haven't listened to part one, go back and do that now. We'll be back with a new episode in two weeks, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. We want to remind you that Kat has gotten express permission from her team to share these stories and has their support to do so. I'm Jonna Harris, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the best I can stop. Well, why don't we pivot to getting a little bit more linear then, now that you say that? Why don't you walk us through how everything unraveled for you guys? Because unravel it did. Yeah, I know. I, I felt so bad sending you all that document. It was so freaking long. I wanted to no. be as like detailed as possible. No, it's helpful. Yes. Do not feel bad. Also, <laughs> You are not. (laughs) We have gotten Google Drives from people in the past with so much document. We've got a lot. (laughs) You are not by a long shot. (laughs) Just some light reading for work. (laughs) I read all of it. Anybody sends me something, I read it because that's my, I love reading. So I want to know. I want to know. It helps so much. So, Okay. Well, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to go through it and I'm going to you know, I, there are several people I want to get in here, but I'm just going to, so for me, the story is two, the story is like two stories into one. It's the story of the environment mm-hmm. that we were living under, which was a daily, you know, a daily cage that, you know, and then there was also just the story essentially of leader R's affair, which started very early on and kind of is the, the kind of was the drain plug of the whole operation. So it's like, I think a lot of people could look at the story and go, oh, that's a story of a bad leader or, oh, that's a story of someone who ended up cheating on his wife. But it's both. And both are very integral, I think, to just like what happened and what drove me to write this letter. So I think it's just really important to note that really early on when we go back to red flags, as this environment is 
becoming more and more this way, and he's just gaining in his authority and gaining in his control. There was someone on the team who at this time would have been a year older than me. So she was maybe like 21 when she started. We'll call her A. Leader R immediately very early on took a shine to her. I think immediately inappropriately. So um, Kate has a memory all the way back in 2013. We were in Houston. I had been on staff for maybe like a little over a year. Um, She woke up at midnight and felt like God was telling her to go walk outside to the prayer chapel at the church base that we were on. And she found leader RNA walking out of the prayer chapel together in the dark at midnight. And just that was for her huge red flag. And so she went and took this to leader B, who was our, who was leader R's direct leader, 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 who was never around and would every now and again make quick visits to come see us, but was not, I, at least for me, it was not in direct contact to kind of see how we were all doing. She had kind of expressed to leader B, Hey, like, you know, it's been a really hard year for our marriage. I don't think that we're flourishing when our family unit isn't thriving at this point, they have a young son and leader B kind of dismisses it and goes, well, you know, my first wife, um, used to chase me around the kitchen with a knife because she thought that I was cheating on her, but really it's just because women are jealous that men get to go out and do things while women have to stay home and take care of children. So the very first even little inkling of this is inappropriate behavior, regardless of, you know, he, Leader R told Kate, his wife, that they were turning off lights in the prayer chapel together at midnight, which regardless is like, even if that's true, aren't there other boys on the campus that you could ask to, you know, or can't you go, Hey, go to bed. I'm going to get the lights. Like I'm six foot two and burly and tattooed. Like I'm safe. Right. So, but Leader B immediately dismissed it and just shut it down. And so that was kind of the very beginning of just some silencing on her end. Um, Things progress. I have a memory later on that. I think maybe perhaps prior to that, we were on a missions trip and we were in Georgia. It was our last stop. And back to drinking, Leader R took several of us out to the beaches in Georgia, got us very drunk. Um, and I, I don't remember this, uh, but he, we were all hanging out in, you know, hammocks. He was getting really, really cuddly with the girls, uh, and particularly a, um, and kind of pulled her close to him. And I don't remember anything else because we were seriously like we were, we were young and in missions and wasted (laughs) and we get back to the house and leader R is so drunk he has to immediately go to sleep and a is in the bedroom at her host home sobbing her eyes out because she feels so something must have happened in his physical contact with her and it really bothered her enough that she was sobbing on the floor to me and saying I have to tell Kate I have to tell Kate which really amped me up I was like yeah let's get him like you know he I at that point I was fully like this guy is an asshole to me. I was super excited that somebody was going to hold him accountable. And all I know is after she sobbed on the floor over something that happened between them and the hammock while she was drunk on the beach, nothing ever transpired. It's, it's almost like it just, the whole experience just dissipated into thin air. I remember that very specifically. Another story of this same year, August, Elizabeth is her name. She was on the team. Everybody at this, I just want to like clarify, like Christian or not, 
when you were young and in your 20s, you flirt with people. <laughs> like we have so much sexual tension and we're not allowed to explore our romantic relationships to one another or even just have the luxury of exploring our relationships. Like that's just a very normal formative thing for someone in their early 20s mm -hmm. to do. And we were not allowed to do so. So everybody to some extent, you know, we were all acting on these urges. Um, and Elizabeth was someone who got a heavier reputation for this. So very much like Hester Prynne, you know, Scarlet Letter like situation. But um, mm -hmm. Elizabeth's birthday, I think she might've been 22. Uh, it was a bonfire at Leader R and Kate's house. They had a, a home base back at Tyler. So we were there for some reason drinking in their garage. So again, like back to drinking. Leader R offered to take her on a motorcycle ride because he rode, a, he was big into, you know, big into motorcycles. And so it was around 2 a.m. at this point. After they go for the joyride, he offers to walk her to the girls' dorm. And when they get to where she's about to turn off to walk to the dorm at 2 a.m. in the morning, he pulls her into a really tight hug that very quickly turned into him groping her. Um, she pulls away and starts to break down and cry. Uh, tells him that's not okay. He immediately launches into, why are you freaking out? I've gone skinny dipping with other women before. Why are you making this a big deal? And is angry with her response. She starts to sob. We need to tell Kate. And he says, do you really want to be the cause of another divorce? Elizabeth's parents had divorced, I think like a couple years prior. So it was something really fresh and painful to her. So he immediately, you know, just tells her if, if you tell Kate, you will be causing another divorce in your life. So she now is, you know, very effectively silenced, has to live with this guilt. Yeah. Um, it grows on her. So over the next year, just things get worse and worse in her head. Carry, you know, he's making her carry this secret of something he did. Elizabeth, before she gets the chance to tell Kate, reaches out to somebody at the base who does an inner healing session. So she starts to pursue just personal inner healing for the things that she feels like she struggles with or the things that she's told she struggles with, you know, really pertaining to her sexuality, to be completely honest. And the next thing, you know, leader R and leader B are... Are those inner healing sessions confidential? Yeah, confidential. So it was just, I think it's really normal. You know, there was someone who offered a service of inner trauma healing, which I think was very spiritual in nature. Who gave these trauma? Is it YWAM that offers this? Yeah, it was, it was a couple... It was a couple, I'm not sure if it was YWAM specifically, but clearly YWAM gave the go ahead or else it wouldn't have been able to happen. But it was a couple who lived on the base who were a really good couple. And the wife did, the wife specialized mm -hmm. in inner healing, uh, like therapy sessions. And so Elizabeth. Okay. So she was licensed. I, probably not. I don't know. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. yeah totally. I'm not saying this to um, say anything or to sidetrack you, I just want to say like, hey, this was like your mental health uh, option. It's all, it's still within the organization. Well, Jonna, our mental health option was being a Christian. So, and if you yeah. didn't have that on, if you didn't have that on lock. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Sorry. So next thing we know, she does this inner healing. I don't know. If, I don't know if she did it or if she reached out to do it, but it got it got back somehow uh -huh. to Leader R and Leader B. And again, this is around the time that she had been telling Leader R, I need I need to tell you know your wife. 
we were all on a break at this, like at this time to go see our family and they, she lives, she lived in a Northern state. So pretty freaking far drive from Texas and they make her leader B and leader R call her down a day early. So they make her come down early and they tell her, Hey, you know, because you reached out to this person about this, about receiving inner healing, we just don't think that this is a healthy environment for you anymore. And, uh, and they tell her, we've just decided that you're not growing, so we need to cut you loose. And um, I think they had used Elizabeth's flirtations with some of the boys on the team who reciprocated as foundation to say that she also probably wasn't healthy for other people to be around. And the whole time while they're explaining this to her, Kate is sobbing because she feels like she has no control and loves Elizabeth. Um, she's sobbing just racked with guilt, but can't control what's happening. Doesn't feel like it's fair that Elizabeth is going home. And also the message it sends, like, this is just, you know, like one too many issues too far for you to be able to be here. But, uh, and Kate didn't know still, right? Kate was told just, I mean, it was an out of the blue, all of a sudden leader B and leader R are like, so we talked to the council and they said, you know, they suggested that She's not healthy anymore. I My theory is leader R got freaked and and went to the council and said, hey, we have this super flirtatious girl on the team who's seducing all the boys. Had Kate been um, informed that he had like come on to her? No, she had no idea. Zero idea. So she's sobbing because she just loves. She loves Elizabeth. Elizabeth. And, she, and it's also, it's very unfair. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's like not how you love people. It's, you know, the, the Christian messaging is... Uh-huh. You, you stick it out. Like it's unconditional love and we are here for you. We will walk you through this. Like whatever you feel like you need healing over. Like we, we are here for you. You are not a hindrance to this team environment. So she's just like, this does not make sense with what we proclaim to be. But she again has no control. Um, and so they tell Elizabeth she has to go. She begs please, they, they want her to leave that day, essentially. And she begs, please let me say goodbye. Please give me a day to say goodbye to my team. And leader R didn't want to do it. And eventually he acquiesced. And so I remember being called back a day early from our family vacation to come essentially to just be told Elizabeth's leaving, say your goodbyes. And that's all. And then we leader R told us later, um, she just was too, you know, essentially Jezebel's spirit had to get rid of her. So, <laughs> so. I'm so horrified. Yeah, I keep laughing. And laughing is not the right response, but it's just so like. It's so. Yeah. We have this conversation with every guest. You've probably heard it on episodes. Like everybody, like when you get to a certain point, you have to laugh because like your body literally doesn't know, like your emotions don't know how to handle it or hold yeah. it. Uh, Jay and I get in trouble for laughing all the time because people can't see that we see each other. So they're not picking up on like our cues that like somebody's waving their arms like violently, like what the hell? Um, but I mean, I say it oh, a lot of episodes, that one quote, laughter is the language of survivors. Oh my God. <laughs> like that's just how, that's just how it's so wild. You're like, how is this like, it's so, how did my life? How is this something I ever experienced and can live to tell the tale and share this? No, story? I mean, I think like your neurons would glitch out like, if they were able to fully like take yeah. in. So, yeah. And I mean, Jay and I are just 
humans just having a conversation. Like we're not professional oh, <laughs> therapists yeah. by yeah. any means. I'm not that I'm we're asking. not therapists. So <laughs> and no, not that you're putting that. But like we don't have like a professional filter where we're like, oh, I know how to handle this and not laugh at the absurdity Good, yeah. of like someone waving pizza crust in an, yeah. a grown adult's face. Mm-hmm wild well and i also think like in that story like you know leader b who we'll get to later like you know he he was in the mix with this stuff and you know Mm should have been able to discern should have investigated this a little bit more um at the time but he didn't so he looked the other way and you know decided to believe in leader r i mean he maybe was sketchy too though if his wife's chasing him around a kitchen with a knife saying he's cheating on her maybe he was doing some sketchy ass stuff like leader r it's possible he i don't think anybody would meet him and think that um i just i mean like i actually learned that recently which is pretty shocking because he's a very kind passionate mild-mannered visionary of a man and like i was telling jay earlier you know the worst thing the hardest part about telling these stories is you know there is never really a a clear villain well i think i have one in my situation but like when it comes to you know like leaders who are in spiritual positions like sometimes it's the people that you truly i mean a really good example in the bible is king david like they you know the bible tells the whole story of the rape of his daughter tamar and you focus Mm -hmm. on her brother who raped her as the villain but you don't think about how david just had absolutely no response to the assault that happened and but when we think of david we think of the man who wrote the psalms and not the man who covered his daughter's rape so like it's this this horrible it's a horrible nuance that we have to hold when it comes to addressing these individuals which is why spiritual abuse is so horrifically bad yeah absolutely let's keep going so elizabeth is off the team now what and what year is this probably cat this this is all 2013 um which was 2013 which is the the first full year that i spent on this team out, uh, outside of my school, the Bible year. So that was a lovely little dipping my feet in the water, you know, not really around leader R enough. And then all of a sudden, you know, we're YM Tyler shoots us off into the atmosphere free to go do our urban DTS things. And that's kind of when that's the red flag thing. I mean, I think things got bad quick. Like I remember Houston was the first location we went to as a team post school, our school, the Bible training, and Houston, I think, was one of the worst years for all of us. Oh, my word. And that's the year that Elizabeth was mm-hmm. kicked off the team. Yeah. So by the end of the year, I believe, I well, I think by the end of the year, the assault happened. And by this mm-hmm. late summer of 2014, when she had started to, you know, pursue healing and, and basically threaten to or expressed that she wanted to tell was when she was cut loose and we were right about to move to Dallas to host our next school. Okay. So. Oh my god. So what happened? Walk us through what happened next. So 2014 um A's father died of cancer, which is something that also had happened to leader R's father. Um and so she enters into a, like essentially a, a grief and depression for the next really the rest of her time there. And to remind everyone a is um, who was in the hammock with uh, Leader R. Leader A was who was in the hammock. Leader A was who uh, Kate caught walking out of the prayer chapel at midnight mm-hmm. with. And just everybody really early on p- 
picked up on favoritism between leader R and A. I mean, everybody, there were really only two people who did not receive R's wrath and ire and shame. And it was, and A was one of those two people. So that's important to note. I'm going to fast forward to April 2015. We decide that instead of being nomadic, um, we will root ourselves into one of the satellite bases and we all, most of us feel like we are to move to New Orleans. So we pick up and we move. I think at that point, our team maybe, I think is maybe around 10, maybe like nine or 10. We, the, we host some schools that fall uh, throughout the missions trip. There are mission trips. There are multiple reports of just really weird. First off, Leader R was just really on a whole other level on those missions trips with the students. And I don't recall any of this, any of the stories in particular right now. They're pretty, pretty horrible. So definitely like some very deep trauma there for, for the, the people who went on those missions trips and came to New Orleans to do an urban DTS school. But while he was hosting these missions trips, there were just a lot of reports that he would disappear for hours on end with A, hours on end. Um, which was just really bizarre. And these missions trips, when you say that, these are like all around the world. Haiti, Honolulu, uh, Spain. There was one actually really funny trip that uh, Leader R was super into the outdoors in Colorado in the West. And so he decided everyone was going to do a camping uh, missions trip, which is funny because our whole thing is <laughs> like urban DTS, right? So, um, yeah, well, but it didn't, I mean, you know, we would all pray and be like, I think God's telling us to go to Mexico city. And he would be like, mm, I'm feeling, you know, I'm feeling Hawaii or I'm feeling like Colorado. So that's a side note. <laughs> yeah. Who pays for you guys to get to these places? We do. We're, we are fully so, so it is our responsibility to be fully financially supported uh, by churches we ask, individuals we approach. So yeah, there's not a single, there's, there's no payment. It's, that's on us, which was another source of constant control. He was very like, would, he would demand financial transparency in, in groups of people uh, all the time. Like he would always host meetings where you would have to like be financially transparent about like how much you had in savings or who did you ask to support you that month? Which is, a, guys, it's like so embarrassing. It's a really humiliating. Yeah. I, there were several who ha were really lucky and had like a wealthy church, you know, who could afford to support them. And just to give like a parameter, we, YWAM asked you to be at full support, which was a minimum of $800 a month. So that seemed like all the money in the world to me at the time, but it was, that, that's so... You know, that we were living well under the poverty level. And especially for people wow. like me, I never got over the discomfort of asking for support. So I lived well beneath that. Uh, who paid for Leader R to go on these trips? Well, you know, he was very charismatic. And Kate, his wife, mm -hmm. had a lot of church connections, um, had been in YM for a long time. So they were they were very they were very fully funded, but also um, because of his lack of financial transparency and just some weird things happening, the people on the team who were more connected with logistics felt like they noticed a pattern of leader R just money just turning up for him. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. they didn't have any money left in the account that was designated for the urban DTS. So there, I think there could have oh, been some, okay. could have been some book cooking in that yeah. regard, but I don't, I don't know for sure. 
Right. Yeah. Okay. So let's continue on. Yeah. So so that becomes a theme. This was kind of around the time I think I told you this on my phone call, Jana, but I think it was like 2015, 2016 was when he threw a brick at, at my window because he was angry at me. We were hosting an agricultural team that was building a uh, aquaponic system in our backyard in New Orleans. Um, oftentimes, like Leader R would just get super. He really, I just think he had this weird complex where he wanted constant praise and adoration and he wanted to be seen. He just wanted to be more than what he was. And so he was always taking on these projects and getting funding for it and then kind of putting it on us to, to manage. And so that summer we were doing a garden because we were supposed to be feeding the uh, poor in our neighborhood because New Orleans is a food desert which is like a really lovely thought in theory. Also, you needed to feed yourselves. Well, we were struggling to pay for $7 slices of pizza at the time. <laughs> um, reg- yeah. Regardless. Um, yeah, so he had hired like his best friend. He was the leader of the agri- agricultural team and he was just on another level. And I actually had gotten a bug bite that I was allergic to and my uh, bug bite blew. I had two of them blew up to the size of golf balls on my legs. So I took some Benadryl and said, hey, I'm going to go sleep this off. Like we were all gardening at the time and it, man, it pissed him off. And uh, so he, to get my attention, he... I was living in a loft in a building and I had a deck and he uh, had my, I had my phone on me and instead of texting me or calling me, he picked up a brick outside and threw it at my window. I didn't hit like the glass for it to shatter, but like I, you know, and then I came outside on the porch where he had thrown it and he was trying to get my attention that way, which is just, again, very unnecessary and aggressive. A, a pa- violent. It's violent. There's a pattern. There's a pattern of violence and a, just a pattern too of physical boundary violation. So later on, I think maybe in, I have it written in my notes in September 16, another really, really bizarre thing happens. He is in Colorado for some missions trip he's hosting that summer. I rarely, I, I don't think I ever went on a missions trip. I was always, again, I just was not very well liked. And, um, so I was constantly back at home just doing whatever the heck we were doing day to day there. When you say not well, like, yeah. do you mean by your team or do you mean by leader R? No, you know, it's funny. Cause one person who matters dislikes you and you kind of feel like nobody else does, but I actually mm-hmm. like my team, we love, man, we loved each other. I don't think that there is a spe- mm-hmm. any certain case of someone vehemently, disliking another person at least for the most part and so I was actually you know maybe this is arrogant to say I feel like I was very well loved you know like they were Mm -hmm. it's it's such a cliche but siblings you know like they were siblings Mm -hmm. and so I had really good friends and um but leader R did not like me for a lot of reasons um I was very honest which is not great when you're narcissistic and constantly trying to position yourself in a place of advantage Mm -hmm. and honesty is not very welcomed. Um, I was introverted and naturally self-preservative, which at the time I thought was just, I just, I mean, I truly, I went through a couple years where I just would pray to God to change me because I felt so wrong compared to what I would call the YWAM standard. And I felt like they were character flaws, not personality traits that I needed to alter and it got so bad too that like leader R would, um, one time he pulled me aside. I had been really honest about, we, we had had some worship night that they led 
and we were debriefing the worship night. We were in DC for something. And when I got to my turn to debrief how I felt about the worship experience, I was very honest. And I said that I had a hard time. I was kind of in my head. I had was having a really miserable summer um, and just was really honest and said, you know, I kind of had a hard time. I was in my head a lot tonight. And Leader R pulled me aside and told me that I wasn't a Christian because I clearly had not submitted uh, to Jesus's full lordship. And by the end of that year, when we went to do the Houston school, he had suggested, he had come to me and said, so we've decided that it's important for you to sit in on the DTS lecture phase again, kind of like as if the first time I did my DTS, it didn't stick. So essentially I was told because you were in your head or you're introverted or you're quiet or you're clearly very sad about something, you have not made Jesus your Lord and you need to do this DTS again, which is so humiliating, you guys. But I, you know, like you, you stick it out because you want to be a good kid. You want to, you want to be um, submissive and you want to listen to criticism and take it well. So anyways, I wasn't very well liked and that mostly continued. Yeah. I mean, I would probably be in that same camp because I'm incredibly introverted too. And what I think is interesting is like, you know, the, the, I've learned this in my own journey, like, uh, through my own story about the things that were beautiful about me, that my creativity, uh, my ability to, you know, discern or even dream my compassion, like those were all weaponized or stolen from me. They were stolen and then weaponized against me and pointed back at me at saying those qualities are what make you bad. And like, when I hear you talk about that, like that's immediately what my gut feels is like these beautiful things about you that God made you this way and gave you these, these things are being taken from you, consumed by him, then turned back around and said, because of these very things that I, that God has given you, this is what's wrong with you. And like, I can't only imagine like how that impacted your view of God but also like of men too, like how do you even viewed like significant others or now I know you're married, your husband, and then how you even viewed God. And it breaks my heart because I've struggled with those same things because I've had to answer those questions about what is good about me is not wrong. It's not a lie, but it was stolen from me. And I have to fight to get it back because if I sit in this space, and, and keep allowing that to consume me, right? Like I, I put so much guilt and shame on me. It, it literally is like, I don't want to move. I just want to like fade away. It's, that's probably been the hardest part of my own story. And I'm hearing you tell me that. And I'm like, wow, that reminds me a lot of what I've been through. And I just want to say as a person who's gone through that, like I'm really, really sorry. But at the same time, I want to say like, I see those qualities in our conversation coming out in you, and those are real things. And no one has the right to take those things from you, ever. And uh, I just, you know, I want to say that because, like, I have to say that to myself. <laughs> so, well, can I actually really quick share with you a breakthrough I had in therapy about that? I think introverts, as I said, as I say, tend to be very self-preservative. And I think another thing that's weaponized in evangelical spaces is, is the concept of vulnerability without boundary. So vulnerability has to be unconditional. And if you don't do it with a group of people on command, you are not dying to yourself as Christ asks us to die to ourselves, which is a total distortion, I think, of what he really means. At least I think. 
I was very self-preservative around leader R for, you know, I would, a lot of people cope with giving more of themselves. There were several of us on the team who would just do more, serve more, be more involved. You know, it's the people who are like, well, I know they're probably talking bad about me in that room. So I'm going to go be in that room. So they can't. And then there's the people like me who are like, I'm just like going to go sit in this room, you know, and like read a book. Um, so I would tense up around him, couldn't be myself, um, didn't want to speak because I got in trouble a lot for the things that I would say and how I would say them, which he would use against me. You know, he loved to tell me that I was a stick in the mud, the buzzkill of the team, that I didn't have any personality. He told me this stuff, like, you know, really awful things about my personality. And I remember telling him, well, I don't like, I don't feel like I can be myself around you. Just flat out told him, which he didn't accept. But I had... um a breakthrough in therapy where it just dawned on me that I was so self-preservative because subconsciously I was protecting myself. Like you're self-preservative because you, your body and your subconscious is, you know, you are, you are protecting yourself. You, you, your brain is notifying you that you're in an unhealthy, unsafe, dangerous environment. So you, you're retreating, you know, you're tensing up in order to, in order to distance yourself from harm. So just realizing that it wasn't a personality flaw or a character defect or me being unchristian, it was my body loving me and saying, no, like, I don't care if it's more valued on the team to be charismatic. Like you are, you are going to distance yourself from this person, even if you're in the room with him. So just realizing that I just felt so proud of 19 year old cat who, whose body in spite of all, you know, my, my objections was insisting on creating a barrier there for my protection. No, that's beautiful. And like the whole, I, I've struggled with this too. And I, the killing yourself, like, you know, you got to die. Your parts of your life have got to die to follow Jesus. And I find that, I find that language troubling when you're trying to kill the parts of you that are you, that are what God made you to be. And like that type of language where you say, hey, like, I, I struggle with interacting with people in public. And it has a lot to do with how I was raised. It has a lot to do with my wounds. But it also has a lot to do with just the fact that, like, even in a, a place where I feel great about myself, I just struggle with it. It's who I am. And, like, to be told, like, you got to kill that. You got to die to that. And then, oh, yeah, Jesus wants you to die to that. That is, like, so, I mean, it's spiritually abusive, but the like what that does to you is just i can't even describe it like how it puts you in a place where you don't like yourself and it is it's super super troubling that that language is out there i have a journal entry i read of this time period where i so sad i had been praying and begging god to change me so i could conform to what leader r thought was the best christian version of myself and it wasn't happening uh, and I, it's so sad because in these journal entries, I'm in one of them, I'm telling God, I sense that you are telling me to not change because there's nothing wrong with me. But I, right, but that feels so like it, I can't imagine a more alone, like I, that makes me feel so alone. I can't stand it. So just having these two people in my life, God and leader are, and in this moment, I'm telling God, I sense you telling me not to change, but that the thought of that sounds so alone. I can't bear it. It's like, there's a clear who has more influence and how I feel like, like in my mind, leader are held more sway over my 
daily, Mm -hmm. you know, like my daily experience. And so that is what I wanted. I wanted his approval so I could feel at peace with myself and couldn't listen to a God who was saying, I'm not changing anything. I'm not doing it. I'm not, I'm, you're begging me and I'm not going to do it because nothing's wrong with you. But just even admitting that and going, I, so I, the thought of being myself was so lonely. I can't stand it. So sad. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into, um, we can kind of go forward a little bit. So unless there's other stories you have, but what, why don't you, why don't you lead us up to you leaving, right? Like what led to that? Like lead us up into maybe the year that you left or the year or two before you left, what led to that decision? I don't want to fast forward you through anything you want to share though. So yeah, if there's anything in between that, let us, you can add it. I'll, I'll condense it. Um, I do need to note that in between, so new Orleans, the a stuff ramps up. Um, it's very blatant. There was a night that Kate texts leader R uh, he's in Chicago started, you know, getting the school ready. Kate is not there. Texts R that she's pregnant with her third child and R's response is to take A and Olivia, um, who was very close with A out, got them very, very shit faced. At one point, jokingly reached around A's back and unsnapped her bra through her shirt and then started joking about how he could tell her bra size. And then uh, w- gets them back to the dorm they're living in in Chicago Olivia begs to sleep in the same room as A. R says no. And uh, Olivia remembers passing out as she's watching R lead A into a different room. And then the next morning, R woke them both up and said, it's better that we don't tell anybody about this. There's another moment between A, Olivia, and R uh, in Utah on some missions trip where R gets... A and Olivia in a hot tub, starts to massage A. Olivia thinks it's really bizarre. Back in New Orleans, I noticed some really weird things like A and R are going out to Planet Fitness at midnight every night together to work out. And I, at this point, had become so desensitized to to my own suffering that you just kind of hit a breaking point where you're like, I have, I remember thinking I've already lost everything. He's embarrassed me as much as somebody could in front of all these peers that I love and want the approval of. I have nothing else to lose. So I just started to get a lot more um, vocal, which ironically made him respect me more. Later on that very same summer, right before uh, I go to Beijing with Leader R to meet a team there, I talked to Olivia and I, and which was very important for me to do because it was building, building. And also it was terrifying for me to do because again, everything gets back to him. And I pulled her aside and said, Hey, do you think things are weird between R and A? And she says, and she paused and she said, yes, but I know their character. They're both really good people. I know that it's probably nothing, but everybody was having hunches and weird dreams. Olivia had a lot of weird dreams about A and R, um, which she, you know, she told me about later. We fly to Beijing. Uh, we get there at super late in the morning. Where is it? Just you and Leader R in Beijing. Just me and Leader R go to Beijing. Ugh. We're meeting a team there, but just us two are flying. So we get to our condo that we're staying in Beijing, and I have one room. He has another room. I think there's a third person in the apartment. I am sitting in my room with the lights off in my bed, staring at the skyline. Can't go to sleep. Super jet lagged. And R comes in again, as he's so comfortable to do and sits on the, just walks in, just walks in, sits on the edge of my bed um, and starts to talk to me. He tells me that he probably knows my bra size just by looking at it and he gets it correct. He, he then brings up 
A, he goes, I know a lot of people probably suspect, you know, the fact that A and I are so close, it means something's going on, but I would never, I would never do anything. She's not even my type. Uh, you know, Kate is tall and blonde and I like tall blondes. At the time I was a lot blonder, um, and tall. So he was like, see, I would never be interested in A because she's not even my type. He starts to, he reaches out and starts to massage my calf and then he says, you know, I really look at A like a sister. I look at all of you guys as my little sisters and I would never do anything to hurt you. That's why I feel so comfortable massaging your leg. And it was just like, and then I didn't really, you kind of go into like, like shock. You're like, well, first off, I like, don't you hate me? <laughs> and now you're in this room at 3 a.m. and it's dark and you're bigger than me and you're massaging my calf. You're telling me you know my bra size and you're insisting. On my bed. On my bed. And you're insisting that you're an honest man to your wife. It's just like a complete cluster fuck in your head. And I, you know, and I also didn't reciprocate anything. And there's also a sick sense of, oh, we're really close. He thinks I'm like his sister. There's also a weird part of gratification that you feel guilty over, even though you know that it's violating. I, I tell him that night that, you know, I said, yeah, you know, I brought it up to Olivia and, and she says she feels the same way, but we both know your character and know that nothing's going on. And of course he goes home and freaking rips into Olivia about it. And Olivia's like, what are you talking about? I told her that I didn't think anything was going on, but that was kind of his modus operandi. This was 2017. That was that summer in September, Olivia and, uh, Ben, who were the primary school staff at this point, were away from New Orleans doing something for the school. Kate finds messages on R's computer between A and R that indicated that there was a very, at least a um, like very emotional affair going on. Um, very apparent messages um, that showed there was some form of romantic relationship and like mutual reciprocation. So she, of course, appropriately freaks out, tells R, you have one day to tell the council. Of course he doesn't. So she tells them um, he had magically, accidentally wiped his phone clean of the messages. Um, and so we were just about to go to a staff retreat that everybody connected to the YWAM Tyler Urban Satellite Bases did every year in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. So Kate has just like realized that all of her, all of her suspicions for years is real, goes to help for it. They somehow convince her that they still need to go to the retreat and interact with everybody as usual, which is super wrong. They s tell Kate that they're going to resolve it there. So I remember this because I felt like something weird was going on, but nobody was discussing anything. Um, and so while... Kate is there at the retreat. Everything is, you know, running as smoothly as leadership wants it to run. Kate remembers they get R to stand up and address everybody over a few things, which she felt was really hurtful. She, you know, to her, she was like, you just discovered that this man is having an affair and you're still going to allow him to address the group. And, and, and more so, you're going to allow him to be here in this position, even though this just happened. And a whole other layer to this that is horrifying as someone hearing your story is the fact that they did not immediately recognize that this is predatory, that this I'm I'm using air quotes on affair because there's no way. I guess there was mutual reciprocation, but there's a power 
balance there and power dynamic that cannot go unnoticed. Like that is clear, clear abuse and grooming that was happening in that relationship. So the fact that your YWAM leadership heard about this and didn't just say, whoa, this man needed to be completely removed immediately for just having an affair on his wife, but didn't think, oh, we need to protect the people around him because he's a predator is mind-blowing to me. Like that part of your guys' story still blows my mind that no one came in and was like, this dude's a predator. Yeah. If this, the age gap, the power dynamic, all of it is so scary. It's scary. And parents are like sending off their 18-year-old kids to YWAM and there's predators allowed to just continue to be in leadership. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so also, you know, I think perhaps this could be, maybe this is nitpicky, but I, you know, they at the time were trying to cover the shame of Kate and R. So they didn't want to tell anybody what was going on. They wanted to handle it. But also like, again, we lived in a fishbowl. So wouldn't you think that perhaps on some level addressing the team at all about it, like any kind of transparency with us who saw it, saw it unfold, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be something that you would think to do, but we were left completely. Your job as a Christian leader is not to protect a man who is a predator and abuser from his own shame of his consequences. Right. Your job is to protect the people in your care. Right. So, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear you, but I'm just like horrified by that decision. No, I just think that we should have been told or addressed in some capacity, especially because we worked so closely with him and we were, we were so, I mean, we were, this is so weird and wrong to say, but we were a part of their marriage. I mean, he often chose us over his marriage throughout the course of his time there. So we were there. We saw or it. Or ask you guys, are any of you guys experiencing inappropriate behavior no, exactly. from this man? Yeah. Like zero protection of you at all at any point during this. Yeah. Perhaps someone else, you know what I mean? So it gets, it gets yeah. better slash worse. Um, so at this conference that they have our address the team at, they pull Kate and a with the council and leader B into a secret meeting, which is happening on premises. And they tell Kate, so we're going to have a time of reconciliation between you and a, and you get to ask her anything you want. So A sobs and, you know, like asks Kate for forgiveness, which Kate gives because, you know, like, because you're taught as a Christian to, you want forgiveness yourself. So you forgive. What are you supposed to do in that situation? Exactly. For both, for both of them. I mean, of course, like if you're, if you're A, of course you're going to cry. And if you're Kate, you're, you know, like you get this one time in this meeting at this place you don't even want to be in and you're around everybody because you're in this three-story cab, like, and you have to process the affair you just realized was happening. So here's what's, here's what Kate asked A. A was supposed to go from this retreat back into a discipleship position on school staff leadership. And Kate goes with, and if you know her, she is has a wonderful way of being, she is cut to the bone, honest, and at the same time, so pure and so kind and so 
like her intentions are, you know, like she's just asking a very fair question. And she told me, you know, I really, I really think discipleship means something. And I, and I think it's a really important position to be in. So my question to A was now that this has happened, how do you think you were in a healthy enough position to go right back into a discipleship role? And leadership cut her off and said, that's an inappropriate question. And then the meeting was ended and Kate got the sense that they had just, they had done what they felt like they needed to do to get this out of the way so they could move on so that they were going to, you know, they had their little reconciliation moment to be able to breeze past this. Um, And then they send A and R or Kate and R on sabbatical to go home to where they're from in Kansas and just tell us just that. Why wouldn't they just fire R? I don't know. I think that they thought, well, we're going to send them home to work on their marriage and they're going to, maybe it just was an unhealthy. They told us, well, the UDTS was an unhealthy environment for their marriage. This is the question that I have times up in my head time and time again with these, with churches and organizations like this, where you have these situations that are what I like to call icky and gross. I don't know why these leaders don't just go, oh, let's just fire the person. Like instead, this is beyond icky and gross. This is dangerous. It's dangerous. Well, not what I'm saying. I'm I'm not saying it's icky and gross to me. Like I think this situation is abusive, and so many levels, traumatic, hurtful, and like frankly, just evil. But I'm saying like the leaders had to know there's something in this situation that is not good. You know, whatever term they want to put in that. Why wouldn't they just be like, we're just going to fire this guy? Because they clearly don't want to investigate it, right, based on what you're saying. Why wouldn't they just fire them? Like, I have the same question for, like, the village church kind of stuff going on that's going on with Chandler. Why don't you just fire him? Like, I don't get, like, why, like, if there's—why why is there's this need to allow these people to be—unless to be in control all the time? Like, I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, I just... Yeah, it makes sense. It's it's so obvious. It's almost like, you know, it, well, duh. But no, they didn't fire him and they made, they put her immediately back into... They put A immediately back into a discipleship position. Like, that is... That I'm horrified. It's just so wild to me. It's so wild. So dangerous. Maybe we shouldn't make you a, a pastoral, you know, a pastoral influence over a group of students. You who it's just been revealed has been carrying an emotional affair with your, with a married man. And to mention that he is in a position of authority. So if they're having an emotional affair, she's a victim too. Like she's a victim of whatever his shit show is that he's throwing out that day. She's not in a healthy spot either. So there's no care or anything for her at all. Like I, I guess I'm trying to like comprehend like if you put yourself in that situation and you just take off all the faith lens of it in the weird like reconciliation language, why there wasn't anyone in that room to be like, this this is messed up <laughs> and like we got to do something. Hence why Kat is sharing her story today. There's nobody in the room willing to actually say what needed to be said and to protect people. Yeah, well, not to mention A had been grieving her father for years and was still very much, yes. you know, grief is, you know, and just just the, the spot of vulnerability that that opens up. I want to say something because I think Kate will hear this episode. 
I just want to take a moment to pause and just say, I am so sorry that you were not cared for in that moment. I'm like, <laughs> I've no, been trying not to cry, cry the entire time. <laughs> um, it's just so horrifying, like on so violating and so betraying on so many levels for all of you. But she's just been erased. That is not Jesus. That is not Jesus. That's why I feel so pertinent to share this specific part of it because I just, she got such, she was erased and there was a certain level as I'll, you know, get to where they just eventually all but one council member who's, you know, a really great woman just tapped out. You know what I mean? Just like, well, we can't fix this. So we don't know what to do about this. So we're just tapping out. No one protected her. Mm-hmm. Like, It wasn't, they shouldn't have been forcing them even back into reconciliation or whatever they were doing. And that moment, all, everything should have ceased. It should have been a stop. Are you okay? To both women, are you okay? What can we do to make you whole, to find healing for you and to protect you from this man and the decisions that he has made? Because you've both been extremely harmed Like, he's not in that room being forced to reconcile with anybody. They took the two women and made these women who have been pitted against each other by an abuser reconcile. The amount of air quotes I'm using right now is out of control. That's what I was going to say. I'm just horrified. Is like for the leadership to even like the way they came in the room from what you're describing, they already had their mind made up that somebody's at fault here. And it's definitely not leader R. Leader R is not at fault, but somebody's at fault. That, to me, speaks more about the culture upstream from Leader R. Like, I'm now thinking, like, what else is going on? Like, this is just like a average day. Let's just, you know, throw, come in here and be like, all right, these women are up to something now. Like, it makes you even more concerned about what... You guys with your Jezebel spirits. Yeah, like, I, I keep thinking about that. And, like, I mean, it's just frightening to me about what... Like, Leader R had to learn this from someone and uh, to, like, how to m- maneuver within the system. And, um, and, and like, it's evident when that meeting takes place. So, Yeah, well, the one, the one council member who has stayed in touch with Kate the, from the get-go told her, you need to write down what happens because he's starting, like, he's going to start to write his narrative, which is very insightful and very sad that not, that she was the only person in power. And I say power in air quotes, because again, female, you know, like I was about to be like, of course it's the one woman that's like, it always is. Hello. totally, And has had longevity of care with her. After this retreat, after, you know, they wrap up what they feel like needs to be wrapped up, they send R and Kate on sabbatical. They tell us, well, they need to take a little while to repair their marriage. It's just been really unhealthy in this kind of format of community living. That's all we're told. Um, And then from here, uh, it's a tricky timeline to tell, but I'll just be very direct. I had found this out later. I cannot disclose, but they are verified. R immediately moved to Colorado and moved A in with him who had left her position on staff at YWAM. She cut off all communication. While he was doing this, he was lying to everybody back at my base, saying that he was in Kansas working on his marriage. He was attending counseling with Kate, which was not true. She attended every single meeting faithfully. He maybe went to three. Were these YWAM counseling? 
both. They? It was, yeah, they had some, like, I think they had went down to Kansas a couple times to have some, again, some sort of, like, cat, like, whatever, counseling set. But then also Kate was in actual marriage counseling. Um, and he was not, not participant. He told her, well, I can't really find work in Kansas, so I need to move to Denver to do it. And, yeah, and so he gets an apartment and moves A.N., who had left YWAM and cut off all contact with us completely. So if some of it was YWAM canceling. Did he not go to that counseling either? He maybe, I think he went to one, maybe one or two, but Kate has made it clear that pretty quickly after he just quit corresponding with him and didn't want to hear any kind of input, told Leader B he didn't want to be involved in the urban anymore, but he was still telling Kate that they were going to be in YWAM still, so she, so she could still use the support they were living on, but he had to go to Denver so he could have his own money to live off of. But Kate says that Leader B, after Leader R said, I don't want to do this anymore, that Leader B pretty much like mentally checked out. So the point I want to make here is because I, I really get upset about Leader B's response back to you, Kat. And the reason why is because stuff like this, he was aware, like if the fact that they were going to try to restore their marriage, yeah, then the, the leadership or the council, whatever you keep telling them, they were aware that this wasn't happening. So like I, again, as a leader, you would think, well, why is he not doing this? I need to press into this. There's got to be more to the story. And I, and no one did. He just goes and moves away and gets his job or whatever. And to me, that, that goes back to that original meeting that you talked about. They weren't, nothing was serious. They weren't serious. They didn't want to hear what those two, what Kate had to say or what A had to say in that meeting. They just wanted to get through it. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm back in New Orleans. I'm trucking along. Leader R calls me one day and says, hey, so me and Kate feel like we're supposed to leave YWAM, which was in October. So they had left for sabbatical September. This was October. He's calling me a month later saying that they feel called to leave YWAM. Meanwhile, he's telling Kate, they're going to stay in YWAM. He tells me he's in Kansas when I ask. He's in Colorado living with A, who he's just moved out there. And and I say, do you and Kate feel peace from God about this? He says, yep. And then he proceeds, and I start to cry because I realize this is it. This is, this is it. Like it's, like it's gone. Like I go into supreme shock, which is funny because there are so many times I wanted to leave and this time it's happening. And now I feel gutted. He says not to tell anybody. So again, I have to carry his secret. Um, and then he starts to systematically call different individuals and tell them why Wim Tyler is a sinking ship and you guys need to leave. So within the course of a month, everybody had left. He had called everybody and convinced them to leave. So everybody had left the whole time. He's t- again, he's telling us he's in Kansas working on his marriage. I go home and I, he, there had been a situation where he had, he had blackmailed me pretty heavily. Uh, and I, and I remember going home after this incident in new Orleans, I was supposed to leave that winter, but I ended up leaving a week after he called. And I remember going home and sitting on the edge of my friend's bed and saying for the first time, he's crazy. I was like, Rachel, he's, he's crazy. I was getting my hair done at a salon and he had chewed me out and blackmailed me into going to a mutual friend's wedding, which was just like so weird. So I called my dad and said, how, how fast can you be here? He uh, got me out of there and I remember stopping at a Bucky's on the way home and feeling so weird that I was at a Bucky's somewhere in Louisiana and nobody from the team knew where I was because he had trained us to text him every time that we went somewhere so that he knew where we were. So I was like, this is so weird that I'm, I'm, I'm 
out and I'm at Bucky's and nobody knows. Like just that alone was just like, I felt like a baby deer with new legs. So I go home and I start to realize, you know, very little by little, I'm away from all that influence. He's still calling me and he's, you know, at this time telling me the same lies, ranting to me wildly about how much he hates Tyler, which I think is really, I remember being really disturbed by the level of vitriol in his tone. And it was really like disturbing. And at the same time, I had started going to therapy because I I realized that something was not okay in that environment, but I was still conditioned to defend him. My therapist told me, this is a cult and you might not be able to say it right now, but we'll get you there. But you know, you want to protect YWAM because YWAM is your baby, but we'll, we'll get you there. I call Kate one day and I'm like, hey, can you kind of explain to me what's going on? Because R keeps calling me and ranting like wildly to me about Tyler and he just sounds a little deranged. And through the course of the conversation, she doesn't tell me at all what's happening. I mean, nobody else is, so why would she be the one? But I do talk to her about my, my suspicions about A because I hadn't heard from A in months at this point. Kate calls R and basically is like, something's going on. I just talked to Kat and she says that you guys, they all had suspicions. So R of course calls me and says, don't feed in to Kate's jealous wife rhetoric. She's just a paranoid, jealous wife. None of it's true. Remember when I told you in Beijing, remember our moment in Beijing where I told you nothing could ever happen between me and A? Of course, he's telling me this from wherever the heck he was in Denver with A, who's his lover and roommate. (laughs) So I'm still in communication with him, um, but I start to slowly accept that he was not a healthy leader and it was not a healthy environment. I'm in therapy. Um, I realize that my faith is so inextricably bound to my experience with him that I have a moment with God where I say, I've got to burn this all down. I can't, I can't just like band-aid cover over these wounds. It's, it's got to go. I have to burn it all down to the ground. And if anything is good and anything is true about this faith I'm in, like those will be the bones still standing, but I couldn't dot, I couldn't stitch together all of these fragmented pieces. Later on that year, me and Olivia realize through various means that A and R had basically been in the cahoots the entire time. Um, at least from the affair in September 2017, they had no intention of R was telling everybody he he had broke he had broken off contact with A and had not spoken to her since September out of respect for his marriage. He was telling everybody that Kate had a new boyfriend and she wasn't trying in counseling, even though Kate was like, well, I went to all of them and even gave you back your wedding ring in a box and begged you to pray every day for the restoration of our marriage up until our anniversary. R never reacted to it. So he's blame shifting on her, saying she's not trying. Lying and saying she has a boyfriend. Yeah. And, you know, and while while A, who again was while the short time she was in staff after they discovered the emotional affair, he was sneaking her up to Dallas to, to hang out in hotel rooms and all of the implications that lie <laughs> therein. Um the whole entire time, no, you know, he had zero intention of ever repairing his marriage and had immediately moved her in and they were immediately sleeping together. And, um, and we realized this and eventually I just start, it just all, you know, it took me about a year for me to kind of gain full understanding of what had happened, full understanding of how little communication there was and just how alone I felt and just how absolutely alone all of us were. We were ripped out of our lives 
and on our own had to pick up the pieces of which there were many and and many different, you know, like so many things were wrong. And we, we were alone to have to kind of navigate through this. You know, we were never given an exit interview. Kate was never given an exit interview. We were never, nobody ever called me to say, hey, what's going on? Why is everybody leaving so fast? Are you guys okay? Never happened. And so eventually I just, I'm like, man, somebody needs to tell. I'm thinking, well, maybe B doesn't know. I didn't know that B knew about the affair. I, but I knew. And I was like, man, maybe B doesn't know. Maybe that's why he hasn't, he hasn't said anything to us. And so I write him a letter and basically, you know, in the letter that I sent y'all basically say, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but this is happening. At the time I wrote the letter, I thought it was just emotional. I find out later it was a physical affair. Not that in my opinion, it matters, but I write him and say, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but also on top of that, I, I need to tell you what this environment was like you are the person who is in charge of him. I'm not trying to blame you, but we were in a very isolated environment where I felt like the toxicity of his behavior was allowed to fester and fester it did. And now on the other end of it, we've all left and we need, we need psychological and spiritual help. And I give him my number. I tell him if any of this was fuzzy, I'm very happy to go over it through a phone call. But I told him I'm really grateful for my time in the Urban DTS. I just feel very strong that I need to advocate for my team. And I said, um, at one point in the letter, I tell him I need to drop the diplomacy, but one of the prized values of YWAM Tyler is relationship. And yet my team and I have experienced nothing of the sort. We've experienced nothing of the sort since the dissolution of our team. So, and then I get that response back from leader B. I want to say something. Cause I, I, I read your letter, Kat, and your letter was incredibly gracious to YWAM in your time there as gracious to the leadership and you know your letter was um, inviting the leadership to just care and inquire about people that had left that were hurt and wounded and needed support and his response was putrid like I'll just be honest it was putrid it was him excusing himself from responsibility and basically telling you good luck and reach out to me when you can. Again, I'm paraphrasing in my own yeah, that my was own, the, my own way. Tone. It was basically like, bless your heart. It bless your heart. This is what I don't think people understand. This kind of stuff is so that response is so damaging and and disorienting, and it and it just triggers and opens wounds and provides no closure. I applaud you for your bravery and I applaud you for your courage and your grace. I don't think you deserve to give them that much grace, but you did. And I applaud you for that because that's a special place in your heart to say those words that were so kind. And then I just break for you on that response because I have been at the end of those types of responses before and they're, they paralyze you again. His response was inexcusable and I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, I felt very like, well, I went straight to the source. <laughs> so I, I uh, had another friend, Olivia had written a letter, a similar letter, and she had said to Leader B, can you please share this letter with the council? Like she wanted more eyes on it. And she did. And I think she got one text from the same woman who has, who has been in contact with Kate, the only person who reached out. And since then, like we haven't, I mean, that was in 2019 and I haven't I had one school leader whose daughter was in our, in our, on our team. So he was very affected by it. Call me and 
how come the council hasn't done anything about this? How, like, how come they haven't reached out to you? And I was like, you've, you tell me like, you know, like you, you tell me, he's like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to bring this to their table and, and just, you know, see if anything can be done. And that was 2019 as well. So, <laughs> and it's been crickets ever since then. And the, the worst part about it is we've actually heard more from leader R than we, than we have from anybody in YWAM leadership since then, even though everything's out in the open. I mean, he has two children with a now they live, you know, in Kansas, um, along with Kate, who has to raise his three children, you know, their youngest was three months old when R left Kate to live a, a, essentially a double lifestyle for about a year until they eventually obviously got divorced. Um, but he, he throughout then every now and again, will still reach out to us and very both passively and aggressively shame us into not keeping in contact with him and telling us that we have a wrong narrative or telling us that the only thing he did wrong was lie to us about a, but we were broken because we had no capacity to love people who hurt us. And several of us still ever so frequently deal with these aggressive intrusions of someone who hurt us. But yet again, radio silence from anybody associated with Tyler and any kind of leadership who we directly reached out to. And I think like, just like the disparity there is shocking. Like, why have I heard more from this man than I have from these people who were there to help me? It's so violating. It's so violating. And there's so much betrayal. I have two questions for you. One, we know your team knows you're talking to us. I'd love to hear why you wanted to share your story publicly. And two, where are you all today? You're across the nation. How's everyone coping with all of this? First answer, the why. Nobody came to me and asked me to do this. I have been really hungry to speak out. And I mean, the reasons can be many, but really hungry. I mean, especially after you write a letter and it just, you don't get anything in response. And I've, I've had nightmares pretty consistently um, since I left YWAM. And I have the same dream. Well, I have two dreams. I have one dream where I've lost all of my YWAM friends and I'm completely alone having to start a new life on my own. And it's just a very bleak feeling, which I think is very obviously like in parallel to what I've had to do since leaving. But my dream is that I am in a room with all of my YWAM staff members and best friends. R walks in with A and is with her and is interacting with us and expecting us to act like everything is normal and that everything's okay and feeling in the dream that this is wrong, but why is he inserting himself into this, into my reality, into this group of people and forcing us to accept his relationship? And that's kind of been the way that he has spoken to us, never directly admitted anything. You know, she has insisted to us that she's not a victim. Um, and that we have it all wrong. He has fudged the timeline, lied to us about the timeline, um, lied to us about Kate, refused to call it an affair to Kate's face, which is so laughable. And so I feel like this whole time, just like he had control over our reality in YWAM post, I have felt like I have still had to live with his sick version of the way things happened, especially because nobody once has tried to address us as a group or address at all what even happened. So I felt like, again, I felt like I've had to live with this secret, like, and I've had to carry it and it hasn't, the tension hasn't gone away. And um, I think that for me has been the driving force to want to, 
on public record be like, you know, we freaking know what you did. We know what you did. You know, leader B, we, we know what happened. Leader R, we know what you did. We know the extent of it. A, we know what happened. And just to even, it's so crazy, even just saying that out loud feels just enough vindication, especially because nobody has wanted to discuss it with us. And when I reached out, I called every single one of my team members and Kate individually and asked for permission. And all of them to varying degrees have told me that it has kind of helped their healing process in a way that nothing yet has been able to. So there has to be some sort of power in voicing it. I think personally that God's favor has been on all of us since we left. Ugh. And which is weird because like I've had a really hard time with my faith. And to this day, it's probably like, I mean, I, I even saying the word faith is weird and triggering for me. And I don't even know what, like every day it changes. By no means does it look like anything what it used to. I believe in God's love. I don't know anything beyond that. So that is very up in the air for me, but I feel like his favor has been on each and every one of us since we left and everybody's doing really well, at least in terms of their life. Several of us have gone back to school. A lot of us have children now. A lot of us have married wonderful people who love us. Um, you know, we most of us live near our families. Um, everybody, it seems, is thriving at least in their external world, but the internal has been a different story. And the hard part about this whole story is the internal is what really you know, like the internal is the secret part of yourself that can just go for years and can be in silence and suffering until somebody addresses it. And so we're great. I think we're great externally, but a lot of us have still been sick with this trauma that has not been fully addressed. So it's a hard, you know, like it's kind of a nuanced answer, but especially I want to shout out to Kate. I mean, Kate has had to raise his three children um, with no college degree, you know, 20 minutes away from where he now lives with his mistress with their new two new children. So that's a whole other level of just, and, you know, she hasn't had anybody in that city aside from her parents to help her. You know, she's had one person from the YWAM group keep in contact with her. So that obviously has been a really hard road for her as well. Yeah. That leaves us kind of speechless, especially for an organization that says like, we're all in this together you know, let's go evangelize and, and, uh, whatever, you know, whatever the motto yeah. is just to have former people and employees and people that gave so much of their time and their creativity to be abandoned, isolated, ignored, whatever term you want to throw out there. It's just, I mean, it's sickening. We gave our youths, you know, like that yeah. has been another hard part is we gave like our youth and even just for me, this is really vulnerable, but even just going back to school, you know, starting college at 25, like you just can't, all of us to varying degrees have been like, we gave our lives and, for, you know, to this and for what, and what, it, you know, like, not that we needed anything in return, but you just think we gave prime young formative years and we're cut loose, you know, like like getting rid of the dog that you don't want. Like, was it Lassie? Like getting rid of the dog that you don't want anymore. Like you just, okay, go, you know, be free. Like that's how it's felt. And we've all had to, we've all had to kind of like process just time and what, what we gave the amount of time we were there and then what we're now left to do. You all were victims of this man, but for your team, 
like watching you tell this story, I've had to like hold it in the whole time. Just like I'm amazed by you, like the amount of like power and strength and integrity and character that you have brought today is like admirable. And I'm just I feel like honored to hear this story from you and to get to meet you. And um, I'm heartbroken and angry for what you went through. It's wrong. It should not have happened. There are so many people that at any point could have stepped in and protected you and valued you and cherished you enough to say no more. I'm heartbroken for Elizabeth. I'm heartbroken that at that moment, that leadership did not step in and say, something's off. (laughs) What is happening here? I'm honestly just beside myself at the incompetency of everyone in any sort of leadership position. Shut it down. Shut it down. No, I, I can't think of one redeeming thing. We have one one of the people on our team, his parents were in like uh, pretty significant authority positions. So he was around a lot of like the people who just make the big decisions in YWAM Tyler. And he says he remember he remembers when this was all happening, one of them going, we just don't even know we don't, we've never, this has never happened before. We don't even know how to handle this. And I, when he told me that I was like, well, freaking anything you could have done it. Like anything is better than nothing. Right. Yeah. And we got nothing. We got nothing. It is ripe for a predator. Yeah. Ripe. Like the idea that there is not policy and protections in place is so frightening. Like I have serious doubts that you guys are the only ones that have experienced something inappropriate to some degree on your team. Oh, for sure. And also, um, I was talking about this with Kate, but there's actually a really common, it's very, very common for people, whether they were with our team or they were with YWAM Tyler as a whole, it's really common for people to spend a lot of time there and then leave very bitter. That's the norm. It's just, you know, there have been so many staff recently Um, since at least I've been around that have left very bitter for various reasons. So that's clearly in a running. Yeah, that's a sickness because you're not valued. You're a pawn like you can mobilize and infiltrate cities, but you can't mobilize as a leadership team to protect the people that you have been entrusted to care for. What the hell? I wrote that letter in January of 2019. And later on that year, Leader B was trying to get the urban DTS started back up again with completely new leadership without any regards to like, maybe it's, is it selfish without any regards to what we freaking went through to bring his vision to life? But we, we know we devoted our youth to his vision. We're deeply abused. Mm -hmm you know, cast out alone. And then he's just starting this back up again without any nod to what had just taken place the year prior. Like that was very, to us, it's like, you just care about accomplishing what you came here to accomplish, which ironically enough, it relates back to the title of your podcast. (laughs) So you get either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. And sometimes 
you're on the bus and you get literally physically thrown off the bus and then, run and then they <laughs> yeah. back over you and run yeah. over you multiple times that's what happened to you guys yeah and then they go oh we didn't see you <laughs> you know we, we didn't see sorry you yeah bummer didn't i just thought it was a speed bump yeah text us good luck with those hospital fees text us if you need anything right it's just like oh, oh my gosh well you should be so incredibly proud of yourself. And this whole time I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, man, all of those qualities about you that he tried to smash and to erase out of you and steal from you are the exact reason why you're the person speaking up right now and using your voice. (laughs) to. But like, for real, I'm sure your team knows that too. Like, All of the ways that he tried to say you're broken are the very tools that I feel like God is using right now to bring healing and justice and restoration. So thank you. My team has been very kind. They have told which and I God, it feels so like this makes me feel awkward to share. But they have told me if they were to choose anybody, they would have chosen me anyways, which has been very encouraging to hear. Um, I know that you guys know this just because it's your job for this podcast, but the level of like the amount of grit it takes, I think, and pain to comb through your trauma all over again, to talk to everybody and organize it, to be able to share it is, was a lot more hurt a lot more than I thought it would, which again, I think is, it's kind of, it's a good thing. It's a part of the healing process. Um, but also, you know, I was, I was in trouble often for being the team loose mouth and I am definitely the team loose mouth now. So, um, yeah. Um, so thank you. Everybody else too, like who has been very brave, you know, just certain people like Dalton who got freaking throat punched in his DTS, Elizabeth, who got kicked off, you know, with her scarlet letter, Kate, who was the erased wife, like we have, like, all of them are very, very, very brave and commendable for just processing this with me and allowing me to share on their behalf. It's a really vulnerable thing. And I know that everybody you've interviewed has probably expressed that, but it's just so uniquely vulnerable. But also, it's just, it's a weird level of I feel like everything in Christian culture tells you this is the exact thing you should not be doing, you know, quote unquote, the meek will inherit the earth. But I, weirdly, I feel like this is, if, if I can, if I can presume to know God's thoughts, I would, I like to imagine that this is something he is, <laughs> he is encouraging, signing off on, you know what I mean? So It's been raining almost all day this week. Where I live, the rain is needed, but we also aren't used to it. After the rain finally cleared, I went for a walk. As I walked, the sun was just starting to break through the dense clouds over the San Gabriel Mountains. With each step, I watched as the sun's light slowly revealed more of the mountain's landscape, a mixture of brown, barren, and large swaths of lush green. I stopped for a moment and just watched. Even the rain couldn't reach every inch of the mountain. Parts were still struggling to survive while others were thriving and expanding. Whenever we hear stories like Kat and her teams, we don't want to believe that there can be so much hurt and abuse in religious organizations or churches. 
We don't want to think that leaders are using their own authority to dishonor the testimony of Jesus and rob people of their dignity and worth. And we don't want to accept that organizations and churches are purposely choosing to excuse away these allegations or silence and dismiss victims. Because for some people, their experiences with churches, faith organizations, and faith leaders are filled with rich relationships and goodness. And when we hear or read about stories of abuse or mistreatment, we struggle to understand how something so horrific could grow in the same places where we found such beauty in life. So instead of listening, we scrutinize every detail of the story. We project our own experiences with the church, faith leader, or faith organizations. And we quote scriptures on gossip, disunity, and forgiveness. We may even say, we are doing this because we love you. God can bring good through this, or God forgave you, so you need to forgive those who abused and hurt you. But with each word and action, the trauma grows deeper within the survivor and they are left more alone. As I stood there looking up at the mountain, it wasn't long before the sun's light covered the entire mountain. Because what the sun knows is that there will be seasons where parts of the mountain's landscape will be growing, dying, and being reborn. But each life cycle is connected and deserves the same warmth and love that radiates from the sun. For Johnny Harris, I am Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Mm-hmm.